Hello and welcome to the Essential B2B Podcast, brought to you as ever by Lead Forensics. I am your host, Joe DiCaro. This episode of the Essential B2B Podcast is with author of the story-selling method, Philip Hum. Now, regular listeners to Essential B2B will know that our motto has become people buy from people. And one really effective method of quickly developing a relationship with a prospect or buyer is through storytelling. Philip embodies this idea and gives some insight into how stories can be used in selling and marketing and the successes it has brought him. So without further ado, here is Philip Hum on the story selling method. How are you doing today, Philip? Really good. Thanks, Jerry. No problem at all. Thank you very much for joining me on what we established earlier on is actually your birthday. So happy birthday from everybody at Lead Forensics. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. No, it's an honor to be celebrating my birthday you now with all the listeners around the world here. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, let's um let's get get started then. Um could you just tell us a bit about your background and how you became to be an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. Sure. I used to work about 10 years in corporate, so doing consulting at Bain & Company and product management at Uber. And um, then at one point Uber laid off 30% of the workforce with COVID. And as I found myself thinking, hey, what would I do next? Uh, I was going through all my options. And first reaction was like, ah, let me apply to these all other roles that are very comparable. Uh, and then when I, once I already got an invite to an interview, I looked at it and I thought, wait, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life, right? Very similar role to my previous role. Did, did I enjoy it that much? Not that much, right? Do I want to do that for the rest of my life? And then I thought, you know what? No, I actually want to try something else. And before that, I already looked a little bit into acting, improv, stand-up comedy, and then especially on the storytelling. I liked it a lot. I, when I did a few courses, I realized that one, I'm not terrible at it. And second, a lot of the courses that are out there, I think I can do that a little bit better, making it more business relevant because a lot of them are very theoretical. And that's how my entrepreneurial journey started. And yeah, I've by now given these storytelling workshops to... Uh, I think hundreds of organizations by now, such as Google, Oracle, Visa, and many, many more. So super excited to be on this journey right now. So then when we say using storytelling in sales, what what exactly do we mean by that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So storytelling in sales, it's about using short, tiny anecdotes here and there to build trust, to stand out, and at the end, to pitch your product. And it's not about sharing these huge stories about life-changing stories, how you uh, uh, turned your life around, but much more around sharing some short, relatable stories to illustrate your point. Because in sales, we're often dealing with this sales resistance, right, of just being sounding like any other salesperson. Stories are a way to differentiate yourself. What components make for those short anecdotes that, that you mentioned and what, what makes a good story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a good story, I'd say um, two, three things that make a great story. That's emotions, visual moments, and surprise. Now, emotions, that's probably the first and biggest one. It's really any time that you want anyone to remember you and your ideas. And if you want to send out and really build that connection, you got to bring in some sort of emotions, pleasant or unpleasant, but it has to have an emotion. The second surprise, that's, there should be something that breaks that pattern of what is expected. Because if, the, if your audience, if they can predict everything that you're speaking about, well, there's no point of paying attention. They might as well mm-hmm. think about, ah, oh, what am I going to buy in the supermarket tonight? Ah, oh, 
what am I seeing in this Instagram feed right now? So you want to break that pattern. And so you want to have some sort of element of surprise in your story. And then the last one, visual moments. A great story takes us into the visual moment of the story. We should be there with the storyteller in that story. So this is why it's always good to start your story like, hey, it's October 2021. I'm in my apartment in Amsterdam. I just finished sending that email. And boom. And then you go already right into the physical moment of the story. So emotions, surprise, and visual moments. When a story has these three elements, it's a great story. And you mentioned it's it's something that that comes up quite a lot on on the podcast that I do for Lead Forensics is that the that building a relationship with a prospect or, or or a customer in that way it's it is about trading the emotions and getting them to relate to your situation the same way that you're relating to them. What pain point are you solving for them with your solution? Do you have any examples of what you mentioned, you know, a good story needs the three things, the emotion, the visual elements, and then uh, the surprise. Do you have any samples or examples of a story like that? Sure. Yeah. I can just tell you one that I um, actually recorded the last few days. Um, one, one, my, one of my own stories. In my case, it was, Last year, sometimes when I was in my apartment in Amsterdam, when I got a call from this account manager at Oracle, uh, Julia, and really not beating around the bush, she said, Philip, this this month, I, I called 52 leads. And out of these 52 leads, I closed only two deals. It's bad. It's really bad. I don't know what's going on, but they always tell us that we're too expensive. After that, I asked her a little bit, hey, so why do you think that happens, right? And she told me a few things. And she told me also how she responded in these situations. When she told me how she responded, I looked at her and asked her, um, Julia, I know you're interested in politics, right? Um, imagine you have to persuade someone of the complete opposite camp. You use bulletproof facts, the perfect arguments. Do you think that you would actually persuade that other person? Probably not, right? Why is that? Decision-making is often not logical, but emotional. If you want to persuade someone, change someone's opinion, you got to appeal to emotions. Well, in Julia's case, we met two days later for a two-hour session in which we crafted two stories to pitch a product and three to overcome objections. Uh, I actually got a call from her six weeks later, which she said, uh, Philip, this <laughs> is crazy. This month, I closed my 11th deal. Uh, I know we only had two hours together, but when can we meet again? What can we get done in five hours together? That just as an example, right, of a story from my own uh, experience. But hey, there are tons of stories. And key is always to find the ones that resonate well with you. Are there any sort of recurring common mistakes you see with people storytelling in sales? Or any that you've heard of? Has anyone said, oh, I tried this story. It just didn't land. Yeah. Common mistakes are first uh, that the stories are not relatable. So we're just like, ah, let me prepare this one story and I'll use it in every single conversation. Mm. Well, that's not how it works. So you got you have a customer and then you pick a story that is relatable to that customer. That is similar industry, similar problem. Um, and once you have that, then you only share the story. That's one. Uh, second, it's making this making the story about yourself instead of the customer. So mm. stories about all oh, I, 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 instead of making it really about a specific customer that you're helping, 
you are the guide of the customer. You're not the hero of the story. And then third, it's by making it very awkward transitioning into the story. Often we just mm. normal and then we're like, oh, once upon a time, there was this <laughs> one person. No, try to weave the story into your conversation as smooth, as naturally as possible. There shouldn't be any difference to how you normally communicate. So don't make a massive show out of this. And are we saying literally go away and, and come up with a set of stories or is it just trying to more sort of bring that structure into your already pre-existing ones? Mm, depends on where you are, right? Most people don't have that many stories to work with. So I'd say in these cases, go through your list of customers and then identify who are the ones that are that seem decently satisfied with working with you. And then for each one of the customers, ask yourself, hey, what situation was that customer before meeting you? What problems did that customer have? How did you help overcome that problem? What was the result, right? How was the life transformed? And there you see, hey, there's probably one or the other story that sticks out a little bit. Take that story and then refine that story. What do you love about your industry, Philip? And is there anything you would change about it? What I love about this industry is that um, by helping people to, to become better storytellers, better speakers, you help people to live a happier life. Because what I like about this is uh, I noticed for myself, for years and years, I felt very insecure about my speaking abilities, about my storytelling skills. I always felt like, oh, man, this is holding me back. And learning the skills was so liberating to me. And I know that becoming a better speaker just is so liberating for so many people and helps them actually reach for any of their goals. So that's what I like most about that industry. That you can just have such a profound impact on people. Uh, is there anything you'd change about it? Yeah, I guess the, the biggest downside, but that applies to every every training training industry, is how much change can you get in most of the engagements. Most of the engagements are often, ah, we do a cool workshop, and then everyone forgets about it mm. the day later. And so the industry should be focused much more about how can we get a lasting change in behavior instead of just trying, ah, oh, let's have a cool session here, but really think how can we help people in the long run? Mm. I think we all have examples of, you know, training days that we've gone away from. Actually, I, I genuinely did come away with some good stuff there. So, yeah, it's got to be trying to find that sort of that sort of level, I suppose. <laughs> what really motivates you, Philip? What gets you out of bed every day? Yeah, no, it's it's pretty similar to the answer the previous one. But it's it's knowing that with each extra video, with each extra article right now, and just helping someone else live a more confident, more comfortable life. And I didn't have that mindset for the first two years where I started. Then it was always like, ah, oh, I didn't want to do this because I want to be financially free. I want to be da, da, da. And I had the entire focus on myself. But lately, let's say the past half year, I've completely shifted that and tried to think, okay, hey, every day, man, I have this cool opportunity to change someone's life. And it sounds super cheesy and probably tons of people are saying it, but for me, it has been the biggest motivator of just shifting my uh, my energy and really going purposeful through life and through the job. I don't think it's cheesy at all. I think it's um, I think yeah, if you have the ability to to help somebody, then I, I kind of feel like, you know you, you're sort of morally obliged to. So yeah, no, I don't think it's cheesy at all. I think that's a wonderful answer.
you. Uh, I'm I'm intrigued as to how you're going to answer this one. Who inspires you, Philip? Mm-hmm. Family-wise, I I was blessed. I think uh, being raised in a, a really awesome family. So my mother gave me a lot of love, which I try to then bring as well into my work. And my dad taught me this discipline. But I'd say in terms of business right now, I don't have a single guru that I admire on everything that they do. But I always find, let's say, a one person that is good in one thing. And for example, Alex Hormozzi, you probably know him as well. He's the, this author of $100 million offer. And that guy has inspired me a lot on my entrepreneurial journey, my entrepreneurial journey, just to reflect of what really matters. Or let's say uh, Grant Cardone, even though I'm by no means a fan of Grant Cardone. But books like his 10x book have inspired me just to reach for much larger goals in my life Mm. to go for things that i thought never would have been possible before and so i always try to just take a few things of these gurus and try to apply them myself but i don't have a single one where i'm let's say oh wow this person i admire on everything they do (laughs) that's a, a great answer because what what it is is that you're sort of the sum of everybody around you aren't you that's sort of like a common idea is that you are the the some parts of everybody that you know so if you're taking little bits from you know this person this person incorporating it you're only going to get you know the best out of yourself as well so i think that's a perfectly fine answer (laughs) (laughs) um what this can be personal or professional or perhaps it's a a mixture of the two philip what do you consider to be your greatest achievement yeah i'd say my greatest achievement was last year when um, i started applying to become a ted speaker and my strategy was just hey i went on uh, in the web, find all these organizers and just ping them randomly. No strategy behind it. Next day, one of the uh, TED organizers from the south of Netherlands, he called me and he said, uh, yeah, Philip, I don't know whether this is fate, but we had a speaker dropping. Do you want to join? And I asked, sure, when is it? He said, well, it's next Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday in six days? Said, yeah, are you up for it? Okay, Alfred. <laughs> and then I had six days to prepare a TED Talk for something that people prepare month and month for. And uh, I was so happy about the opportunity because I've been dreaming about TED Talks all my life. Mm-hmm. And then getting one that quickly and having almost no prep time was just like, wow, I have this chance. I got to make it right. And so the next few days I spent really, really purposeful of how to craft that TED Talk. And six days later, I delivered that TED Talk. And it was actually when it came out, it was selected by the Global TED Organization as editor's pick out of hundreds of other TED Talks. And so it was just really cool to see that, um, yeah, when you really are behind something, in my case, TED Talks, you can just make it happen, even with very short preparation. So I think this is probably my biggest achievement of the past two years. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I wonder if it, it probably, it might've done you a favor to have that short amount of time because you didn't really have enough time to get in your own head about it and start overthinking. So, right. Well, it needs to be this. So we've just, I've just got to get on with it, you know? Yeah. That's so right. Because let's say I didn't do a single time how I would use my hands, gestures, anything, nothing of that. At the end, mm-hmm. it came very natural. If I had more time, well, I would have just been, oh, let me raise my arm in this way. It would not have helped, I think. Absolutely. Philip, how do you uh, how do you decompress from work then? What do you do to switch off? Is there a blurring of the line between work and personal life for you? Or is it quite a staunch, nope, switching off from work? Yeah. 
I'd say it has been a struggle since <laughs> since I started working, but I find I'm, I'm getting more and more to the sweet spot of what works for me, how I decompress. So first, throughout the day, I do tons of meditation, not only once, but multiple, just because I know, hey, I need to reset because I work, 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 get upset, and then I need to reset. And then it starts all over again. So I meditate in the morning, uh, during lunch break, and potentially in the evening just to reset. And the second thing, I dance tons of bachata. It's this Latin American dance. And um, it's it's a little bit like salsa, but just much more sensual. And that just helps me so much to just forget the moment, be present, connect with the music, with my body, and just forget everything that's going on at work. That has been, for me, the most powerful one, to forget everything about work. It's a very, very common trait I'm finding with people I speak to, and I ask that question to the number of people who are, you know, extremely successful and are hugely busy, but then they make time for a physical activity, which means that they are solely focused in exactly what they're doing. And I imagine with the dance, you're focused entirely on your steps, on the beat, you know, where you need to be on the next second, that sort of thing. It's it. it it really is a, a common theme that doing a physical activity where your brain only has the capacity for, okay, we need to breathe and then we need to concentrate on this sort of thing. And you haven't got enough capacity to think, oh, mm -hmm. I must send that email or, or anything like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. What I came to realize is that before that, I always thought all these hobbies or personal development as an optional add-on, right? It's like, oh, this is for my happiness. But at the end, all of these things, they are a must because they impact the energy that you bring into work. And if your energy is shit at work, well, no chance that you're going to close deals, that you're going to persuade any internal stakeholders, nothing like that. But in, if you really, if you bring up your energy and you're much more inspiring person to be around, it's much easier to be successful in business. So it's, I wouldn't see them separate, right? Fantastic stuff. Um, Philip, my final question, for you is uh, if there was one tip you'd like one takeaway you'd like the listeners to take away from this conversation what would that top tip be mm -hmm. one tip that i'd say to everyone before you go into conversation whether at work or outside of work make sure you are in the right mindset it's one thing that i do every single time i just shake my body before any meeting just shake every single part of my body and that way, you're there fully present with that other person. If you're present, you can, you can have the most beautiful conversation. If you're not present and think about other stuff, it's very hard. So make sure to shake out your body just one or two minutes before that next meeting, and you'll see how much impact it can have on your conversations. Fantastic stuff. Philip, thank you so much for joining me on the Essential B2B podcast. All right. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, there we go. Philip Hum on storytelling in sales. Remember to subscribe to the Essential B2B podcast and give us a five-star rating where possible. I'll be back next week with another brilliant Essential B2B podcast.